Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. So Romans chapter 4, and our text is verses 9 to 17. The argument that Paul has set forth is continuing further. He has really given a very well thought out argument here to his Jewish countrymen about Abraham. And then he's going to take that particular argument even further in our text today. And you, I couldn't help but wonder this uh, with some of the content that we are looking at today, even, even what we had went over there last week and what Jason had went over before is how is it that these Jewish rabbis who put so much thought into studying the word of God, studying the law of God, never caught this? Uh, some of these things, it just, it, it just, it's amazing that they did not. How did they not catch that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, meaning he didn't have his own righteousness. It had to be credited to him. It's someone else's righteousness. This is an act of God's grace. How was this not understood? And yet uh, under, then the belief came about of, of keeping the law and having the law and having circumcision is the means by which one is, one is saved or one is counted as the people of God. It's really amazing to me, um, and especially with the argument that he sets forth in our text today. Now, he's, he's emphasized uh, justification uh, very heavily already, specifically the justification of Abraham. Uh, we looked at the implication of that. If Abraham is justified by faith, and righteousness is credited to him as faith, or his faith is credited as righteousness, rather, then the implication is Abraham is a sinner, Abraham is ungodly, Abraham was not uh, perfect in all of his ways as some of the second century B.C. uh, rabbis had taught. He was in need of God's grace. So this well-thought-out argument here, These great blessings that come to those who are justified of God, as we read in verses 7 and 8, that Paul is quoting from Psalm 32. These great blessings that were given to Abraham and to David. The question is, is are they only for the Jews? Are they only for the Jews? He's mentioned David. David was obviously a Jew. He mentioned Abraham. Abraham was obviously the father of the Jewish nation. So are the blessings that, that are being mentioned here in verses 7 and 8 specifically, uh, they, those that he had mentioned prior to, are they only for the Jews? Here's, here's some things to consider when we're looking at this passage of Scripture. We need to, we need to look at what is being implied here. What is being clearly stated in these verses? Do you recognize that what we have went over thus far and what we are going over today really reiterates what the Apostle Paul has said already in the book of Ephesians? In Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 we read that God has tore down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. He has taken both groups and he has made one new man. He's made peace between them. There is no longer distinctions uh, that are made there to to give some kind of a hierarchy of, of the value of this people versus this people. But we, we talk that way, though. We like to acknowledge that, well, there's there's no hierarchy here there's no one that's more valuable than another but when we get to talking it seems to be coming out in what we say for instance when we talk about uh, the the jewish nation when we talk about god's chosen people god's covenant people we say things like that well those are god's covenant people and you have some theologians throughout the history of the church that have said pretty well that the church is a parenthesis in in redemptive history because God had offered salvation to the Jews. They rejected, so he turned his attention to the Gentiles, and then he'll ultimately come back to the Jews 
Now that's more classical dispensationalism, but some of the rudiments of that are still embedded in what people say today and how they view uh, the difference between the church and the Jews. They almost are saying, yes, God loves the church, but he really loves those people over there. Yes, they are his chosen people, and he is more concerned with them and their redemption, their redemptive program, as what you hear. But let me ask these questions, especially for us reformed folk. Do you believe that you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world? You know what that means? You're God's chosen people. Do you believe that you are now a member of the new covenant that has been brought about in Christ? Then you are a covenant member. We need to understand what exactly does the scripture say? What does it actually teach when it comes to this, this whole scenario here? Again, as we've talked about before, and it's, it's permeated all through Romans, so we don't want to beat a dead horse, but at the same time we have to understand we're not talking about replacement theology here. And, and that is a false charge, replacement theology. The church has taken the place of Israel. I don't know anyone that has ever said that, unless you're some kind of a heretic, you know, and you think that white people are the new Israel or the true Israel or, or whatever. Was it Herbert W. Armstrong in the Worldwide Church of God? You know, they believe that sort of thing. The Arians, all that. What does the scripture teach? The scripture is teaching us that the wall that separated the two groups of Jew and Gentile has been done away. And you have two groups, Jew and Gentile, that are made into one new man with one head, which is Christ. We don't have one new man with two heads and two different programs, two different ways of redemption. We have one new man, and the one new man is the church. And the church is not some kind of a Gentile, Gentile entity. Where did it start? If, you, if you, we've been here on Wednesday nights when Richard has been taking us through Acts, when did it start? It started on the day of Pentecost. And who did it start with? It started with the Jews. Always, the church has been made up of Jew and Gentile. And that is what Paul is really arguing here in this text. That's what he's going to bring out even more. Because of the mentality of the Jews in that day, thinking that salvation was only for them, Paul is really going to take his argument even further and demolish that whole idea. So we are chosen people of God. We are covenant members of God. Now, what are the implications of that? And that's what we're looking at today in our text. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We are looking at Romans chapter 4, beginning of verse 9, reading to verse 17. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. God's word says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the righteousness might be credited, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law... There also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all 
the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit whom you have granted to us, would illuminate this in our hearts, bring it to light, manifest it in our hearts, give us understanding that we may delight in you all the more as we see what it is that you have done on our behalf, not only through Christ, but the blessings that we received through him. Things that we, we have the privilege of looking forward to. We pray, Father, that you would be with each person here. You would fill their hearts with such joy of knowing you, of serving you, and of being the recipients of your blessings. Father, we love you. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so as we've been talking the past couple of weeks, we have in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he brings up Abraham as, as the prime example of the one who is justified by faith. We talked about the reasoning why he did this is the Jews had believed certain things about Abraham, really had a view of Abraham that was really unbiblical as you have some of the second century BC. And by the way, I went back and listened to the sermon last week and I kept saying second century. I meant second century BC. So if you're looking up those particular writings that were talked about, uh, it's second century BC. But they had said things like there is no one like him in glory, that he was perfect in all of his dealings with the Lord. And we know that that is not true according to the scripture. We see the faults of Abraham. We see that he was indeed a sinner. Uh, some would go so far, as William Hendrickson will point out, some would go so far to say that Abraham had a full knowledge of God and was keeping the law even before the law was given. And they come up with things like this because of the view that they have of keeping the works of the law is what brings about our justification or what brings about God's favor. So Paul uses Abraham to say, this is not true of Abraham. And he doesn't say this is not true of Abraham, just thinking logically here, he's a human being, etc., etc. He uses a passage of scripture in order to prove this to them. Faith was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. This is what brought it about. And so he is using the scripture toward his Jewish countrymen to say Abraham needed grace. Abraham needed a righteousness that was alien to him. And it came through faith. It came by Abraham believing. He brings up David, as we talked about. David is one who delighted greatly in the laws. We looked at so many psalms that mentioned the law, speak of the law, delighting in the law, seeking to keep the law. In it there is great reward, etc., etc. And yet David writes that blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David knew, even in his great delight of the law, David knew that you need grace. You have to have grace. David knew that the Lord uh, would, would have to impute a righteousness to them if he is not going to count their trespasses to them. Something else has to take place. And we talked about ultimately the great exchange that occurred with Christ. Christ takes your unrighteousness. He grants you his righteousness. And so, having demonstrated these things, Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham needed grace. Abraham was a sinner, just like us. You're not better than him. So now he's going to take it even further. He's not only going to speak of Abraham as being the prime example for the Jewish people of salvation through faith, but now he's going to say some very extraordinary things to his Jewish countrymen in, in emphasizing that Abraham is not only the father of those who are circumcised, who are in the Jewish camp, but he is also the father of those who are the uncircumcised who believe. And 
We look at that and we say, well, that's not really a big deal. That's not really a, a thing. And we probably say that because we're all Gentiles. But this is a huge, huge thing. This reality is going to upset a number, probably, of, of his Jewish audience. Because this is totally opposite of what they viewed uh, as far as salvation. Uh, they viewed the Gentiles as unclean, and we'll see that. So here's how Paul does this, a well-thought-out argument. Abraham's justified by faith, so here's the questions then. The blessing that came through him, by the way, the blessing of your sins being forgiven, being covered, the Lord not crediting them to you. And then he asks this question, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So this blessing that we've been talking about, imputed righteousness, salvation through faith, justification by faith, is it only for the Jews? And he's probably anticipating uh, an affirmative answer here by his Jewish countrymen. Yes, and it's only for the Jews. But here's how he argues this. How then was it credited? Or you could say, when was it credited? We say Abraham, we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How or when was it credited? While he was circumcised? Why he was uncircumcised. And he just goes ahead and just gives the answer. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So what's he saying here? He's saying the very thing that you have placed your assurance in of having this seal of, of the covenant of circumcision, of having the law. When Abraham received this imputed righteousness, he wasn't circumcised when he received it. He was uncircumcised when he received it. How then can you say that circumcision is a necessary element of salvation or circumcision is necessary to have favor with God if Abraham did not even have this seal given to him until 13 years or 14 years after he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness? So how can you say that? Do you recognize that? That in Genesis 15, when it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that it was another 13 or 14 years later before the Lord said, circumcise yourself, circumcise your son, circumcise the males in your house. This is a, a sign between me and you. That didn't happen for another 13 or 14 years. Now, again... Considering the Jewish rabbis and how much that they study and they know the law, how do you miss this? Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness before he was ever circumcised, before that even came up. Before that it was even a part of the covenant that God entered into with Abraham. God had made certain promises to Abraham. Abraham believed. Thirteen years later, fourteen years later, this is the sign between you and I. So Paul's point is, if this is what you're putting your assurance in, and we know that that's part of it because he's already removed that whole foundation there in chapter 2, this is what you're putting your assurance in, what do you say of Abraham then? How do you account for Abraham? He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the righteous, and that righteousness might be credited to them. Why was it that Abraham received imputed righteousness while he was still uncircumcised before that was even brought up? He's going to be the father of the Jewish nations and uh, Jewish nation and all of that. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, according to his infinite wisdom... God entered into covenant with Abraham, credited righteousness to him, while this was never a factor, so that in the time to come, that he would be the father of all the faithful, of all who exercise faith, not only of Jew, but of Gentile. He does, he does explain that Abraham had received this, this seal, this sign 
the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness. And he emphasizes this here. This is something not to, to miss. This was a sign, a seal. The sign of circumcision. The, uh, the word sign, it means a distinguishing mark. And on the most basic level, as one theologian points out, on the most basic level, a sign is nothing more than a communicative indicator between persons. William Mounts, he says, Abraham's circumcision is a sign indicating his subjection and the subjection of his seed to God. He goes on to say, <clears throat> a seal can be thought of as a certification. As when an immigration officer stamps a passport, Abraham was certified as a true child of God by the ordinance or seal of circumcision. It expresses ownership. So the sign of circumcision, which the apostle says is a seal of the righteousness of faith. He received the sign because of faith. He didn't receive the sign as a means to gain favor with God. He received the sign as, as a demonstration of his faith, as a seal and sign of God's ownership over him. A sign of his subjection and the subjection of his seed to the Lord. And that's the very things that we talk about with baptism. As we recognize within the new covenant that, that baptism is, is the very same thing. You know, the very thing that Abraham had emphasized before was that one needed to be circumcised in the heart. Right? Have the circumcision of the heart. The outward sign was given as an indicator of the Spirit's work as a circumcision of the, in the circumcision of the heart. It's the same thing with the baptism. Baptizing in water, as we are commanded to do, is demonstrating the reality of what God is doing on the inside by the Spirit of God, receiving the baptism with the Spirit of God. It is, our, it, it is God's sign of ownership over us, expressing His ownership over us, rather. It is a demonstration an indication, as, he, as William Mount says of circumcision, of our subjection to the Lord. It's not for salvation purposes. We call that heresy. We call that baptismal regeneration. If one says that they must be baptized in order to be saved, we say that's heresy. Why? Because just as what Paul is telling us is the same thing he's telling the Jews then, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Justification is by faith alone, etc. So, this is a sign. This is a seal. has nothing to do with receiving salvation, receiving God's favor. But, notice his points here. What are some implications then? If Abraham, again, was uncircumcised, then he's not only the father of you, but he's the father of all who believe. And as I said before, this is not something to just gloss over. I want you to consider a few passages here. In Acts, hold your place here. In Acts chapter 10. This is a very familiar passage, but we also have the explanation in chapter 10 as well. In Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. We'll read down to verse 16. <clears throat> God's word says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparation, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now look at verse 28. As he is giving 
the explanation of this. He says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So the Jew would be regarded as unclean, having interaction with a Gentile or going to visit a Gentile. And, and this, is how, this is how they view Gentiles. They're unclean. Now in chapter 11, this is, this is the whole instance of, of Peter, of course, with Cornelius. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius. The Lord um, causes the Spirit of God to come upon them. And then when Peter is speaking to his Jewish countrymen in chapter 11, beginning of verse 1, here's, here's, what, here's what they responded with. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were, un, who, excuse me, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to an uncircumcised man and ate with them. And so these men are criticizing Peter, saying, Peter, you know better than this. You're a Jew. We don't associate with the Gentiles. They're unclean. In Acts chapter 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, when they are coming together uh, for the first council there, there are some doctrinal issues, especially regarding circumcision. Here was one of the issues. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So not only are they regarded as unclean, you don't associate with them, you definitely don't eat with them. Okay, they have received the word of God. They have received the spirit of God just as we is what Peter is going to say to them. All right, now what is required of them? And the sect of the Pharisees say they have to be circumcised. They have to observe the law of Moses. Now, look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Paul recounts when he opposed Peter. And why? Why did he oppose Peter? Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, who's another name for Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the rest, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And so Paul opposes Peter to his face. He's saying, You hypocrite, what are you doing? You would eat with the Gentiles. But here come these men from James, and James is regarded as a pious Jew. They're, they're his Jewish countrymen. They're coming, and Peter says, I'm not going to eat with them no more because those guys are going to get mad at me because I was criticized before, perhaps, or whatever it was that Peter had, had conjured up in his mind. I know that Jews aren't to associate with Gentiles and not to even eat with them or visit. They're unclean. Uh, I was criticized for that before. Even at the big council, they still regarded uh, circumcision as necessary. So I'm just going to withdraw myself and I'm not going to eat with them. And then the other Jewish countrymen are going to join Paul in this hypocrisy. And Paul comes around and he says, what are you doing, you hypocrite? But why was this happening? Because of the mindset of the Jews. Salvation is for the Jews. Salvation is not for the Gentiles. They're unclean. So when Paul, writing to the Jews, and he's saying, Abraham is the father of the faithful, he's the father of the faithful Jew, he's the father of the faithful Gentile. That would have caused a big ruckus. What do you mean? But that's what's, that's what's being brought out here. 
Abraham, again, in, in God's infinite wisdom of knowing all things and according to his plan in which he would bring his son into the world at a later time and that the nations would come because that's the promise of Abraham. That's the promise to Abraham. The nations will be blessed. And, and that's exactly what was uh, bringing, bringing brought about in Christ. It's like when you look at the book of Romans and you're, you're looking at the promises that were given in the old covenant according to what God had said to the Jews. All of it's coming to pass and the nations are being blessed. It's all happening. And the inclusion of the Gentiles was always anticipated in the Old Testament. So don't think that circumcision is going to gain you favor with God. It's a, it's a seal of the righteousness of faith. This is what it was to Abraham. And one writer makes a point to say this. We look at baptism. Okay, it's a sign. It's a seal. Nobody can look at you and say, I know that person's been baptized because I see a distinguishing mark on them. No more than they could with circumcision unless you have somebody checking at the door. Somebody had to be there at the temple. I'm just saying. So... It doesn't really matter then, does it? I mean, it's not really that important. But one, one writer really emphasizes that you should not underestimate the significance of the sign and the seal or the significance of what it represents. And here's some examples just to keep in mind. William Hendrickson says, The rainbow does not save mankind from being swallowed up by a flood, but it does signify and seal that God will never drown the human race. The wedding ring does not bring married bliss, but what married person who loves his or her, her marriage partner would ever think of doing away with the ring that means so much to him or her? When it comes to the wedding ring, you know, we, we, we value our wedding rings. <laughs> I usually take mine off at work. We value our wedding rings. We would never think about throwing them away. Why? Because they represent something. They represent the covenant between us and our spouse. And so a sign and a seal should not be underestimated or, or thought insignificant. It was given by a purpose from the Lord to Abraham specifically. And you think of, just to kind of look at this real quick, why circumcision? Why would that be the covenant sign? Because God had promised Abraham in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so it was an indicator of God's promise that through the seed that would come, the one who would come, the nations would be blessed. So a sign and a seal is very important, and we shouldn't just gloss over that. So Abraham is the father of all who, who believe. He's the father of all who believe, whether they're circumcised or whether they're not. He's the father of, of those who are not only circumcised, he says, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. You know who the faithful are, those who are regarded as as the heirs of Abraham, as descendants of Abraham, those who follow in the footsteps of Abraham. And what are we talking about? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So those who believe, those who have faith, are counted as the descendants of Abraham. Those who walk after him. And the idea of walking there, of course, is we, we, we have a number of examples of what that means. What does it mean to walk within the scriptures, etc.? Walk in the footsteps of Abraham. It means being faithful. Being committed unto the Lord. You have a number of scriptures there, like Psalm 1, for example. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The blessed man, he doesn't walk in the way of sinners. The Lord leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We're walking on the path that the Lord has set before us, that he is leading us on. Paul says, Paul uses this language too, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 
Walk worthy of Christ. Be committed. Let your life demonstrate your commitment and your love and your faithfulness unto him. So God has brought us Gentiles into the covenant family, according to what we're reading here. That Abraham might be the father of all who believe, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, the both groups that are now made into one man. Those who follow in the steps of Abraham, who are, who's, who's the father of us all. So, what's he saying? God has brought us Gentiles into the covenant family. You, if you are in Christ, are a member of the covenant family. You who are in Christ are now sealed by God. You have the stamp of his ownership, not just in your baptism, but in the Holy Spirit of God that he has granted to you, as Paul says, is the seal of our redemption. God has set his seal on us. And he done so through the Spirit of God. Do you recognize that you are a covenant member? Again, we acknowledge those things, but then we say things like, those are God's chosen people. This pagan nation that has rejected their Messiah, we will give them that title. Those are God's chosen people. Rather than giving that privilege, that that title of being a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation is what Peter says to the people of God who do believe. You are a member of the covenant family and you have received then the covenant blessings now, it's important to know what exactly they are. And so Paul's going to go into some of these things in verses 13 to 15. That the blessings of Abraham have come. And what were the blessings? He says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, it's important just to step back just for a moment and say, okay, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants... That he would be the heir of the world. What is, what is some of these things in reference to? What promises? Promises of descendants? When you think about the promises that were made to Abraham, he would have many descendants as the stars of heaven. He would inherit the land. He would be the heir of the world. That language isn't really used in the Old Testament, but through him, the nations of the earth being blessed, him inheriting the land. Are the promises that are being spoken of here, those specific promises, all of them, or is it emphasizing the final promise that was to be fulfilled? So here's some things to consider. Just as a footnote that you can... Look at these later. Did God fulfill his promises to his covenant people in the Old Testament? We say, okay, Abraham was promised that his descendants would be as the stars of heaven, innumerable. And then we say things like, well, that hasn't happened yet. But then we have some problems. If you would turn with me to Deuteronomy Chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 10. Here's Moses speaking to the people. This second generation, as they are getting ready to go into the promised land and begin to conquer. Deuteronomy 1, verse 10. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 22. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 
This is after the Babylonian captivity. This is after they have now came back into the land. And this is Nehemiah. As he is confessing the people's sin, his prayer unto the Lord. Verse 23, he says, You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you have brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So you have a number of passages here that say, when it comes to these particular things that were said to Abraham, that your descendants shall be as the stars of heaven. Deuteronomy says, that's happened. Deuteronomy 1 says that's happened. Deuteronomy 10 says that's happened. Nehemiah chapter 9 says that's happened. And you have a span of almost a thousand years between, Abra- or between Deuteronomy and Nehemiah. What are the other promises? How about the land promises? Did God fulfill his promise of the land? Because that's what's said today. Actually, when it comes to the premillennial view, that's actually one of the things that uh, some of the premillennial folks will say. That the thousand year reign of Christ that is to come is necessary so that God will fulfill his promises to Israel concerning the land. Because it wasn't fulfilled. Look at Joshua. Joshua chapter 21. Beginning in verse 43. Verse 43 says, this is Joshua speaking. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave them all Uh, The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. In chapter 23, he repeats it again. Chapter 23, verse 14. Joshua speaking again, his farewell address. Now behold, today I am going to the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. I don't know how we could get any clearer of what Joshua is saying. And then look at 1 Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8. Beginning in verse 55. This is at the dedication of the temple. Here's what Solomon says. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises which he promised through Moses his servant. So when we begin talking about the promises of God to those of his people, we have certain hang-ups as perhaps one of the reasons why we keep this distinction of you have the covenant, old covenant people over here and then you have the church. Because we say things like there still needs to be promises made or promises fulfilled to these over here. And we have to scratch our head and say, which one are we talking about? Because his descendants are as numerous as the stars of heaven. That was said in three different passages. He did give them the land, all that he promised. That was in three different passages. What promise then were they waiting on? In you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the promise that he is speaking of. This is the promise that they were waiting for. The promised Messiah, through him, the nations will be blessed. And so when he speaks here of the promise that was given to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world, this is also included in here. And this is wonderful. This is really good news. Not only your justification, but also he calls Abraham the heir of the world. What does that mean? 
you know, some, uh, some Jewish writers, they would say perhaps that when Melchizedek blessed Abraham back in Genesis 14, and he says, and when he's blessing Abraham, he calls on God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, and he blesses Abraham, that that implied that God intended to make him the heir of all things, which is not so, because we know that Christ is the heir of all things. But here's something that Jesus did say in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, when you have uh, the centurion who asked the Lord uh, to heal his servant, Jesus has has said to him that I will come and heal him. In verse 8, he says, But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into, out, be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A Gentile centurion who has such great faith. And Jesus says, I tell you that many like this that have exercised their faith, believed. They're going to come from the east and the west and they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Abraham is referred to as the heir of the world here. He's not the heir of all things, but he is referred to as the heir of the world. And Jesus says that even the Gentiles are going to come and dine with Abraham. But some other things to look at here that really bring this out even more. We know that Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the one who has inherited all things and reconciling all things back to himself through the blood of his cross. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 15, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the first in rank of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on the earth or things in heaven. So here's what he says of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is first in rank above all. Jesus is the one who has inherited it all. Jesus is the one who is reconciling all things back to himself, whether things in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth. And yet Paul will go on to say, even though Christ is the heir and he has received it all, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we are heirs and joint heirs with him. What did he inherit? Well, generally speaking, you can say the world. He inherited the world. Well, Psalm 2 says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. In Psalm 72, verse 8, it says, May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth is the inheritance of the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 21. So then let not one so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. 
Christ has the nations. They're his. He's going to have dominion over the entire earth. It's his. And then Paul says that all things are yours, even the world. And here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It all belongs to him. And yet we are called heirs and joint heirs with him. In the world, all things, they're yours. So when he refers to Abraham as the heir of the world, and we are the descendants of Abraham, or counted as the children of Abraham, or counted as the covenant members, then these particular blessings and promises that were made to Abraham are given to you. They're yours. All things are yours in him. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, it just doesn't feel that way. My, my life right now is, is just so difficult. I've got so many things going on. And then we have to remember and remind ourselves, as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. This is momentary light affliction that does not compare with what is to be revealed. Because... As Christ has inherited the earth, the nations are his. He has dominion over it all. He says, you're heirs with me, and it's all yours. Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world, this great blessing of what we're talking about, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It didn't come as a means of the law. It didn't come because you can keep the law to its perfection and that you inherit these things. That's what he's saying. It comes through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law, those who are the confident inheritance of the law, are heirs, heirs of these promises and heir of these, heirs of these blessings, faith is made void. The promises are void. The promise is nullified, he says. If you can work your way to the Lord work your salvation and receive this blessing of being heir, an heir of, of the promises of Abraham, faith is void. That's what he's saying. If this is what you think, faith is void and the promises are void. The very thing that you're working for, it's void. It's no longer something that, that you may receive. And that's what Paul says in Romans 9. They tried to attain it by, by the law, not by faith. In Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. When you seek to approach God and His commands with the wrong outlook, and you render faith null and void. But here's what He does say. For the law brings about wrath. The law cannot save. The law can only condemn. It's a mirror held up to us. This is the righteous standard of God. And the Lord is the one who is standing above his law, who is ready to render out justice for those who break his law. The law has no salvific value whatsoever. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now, is he doing away with the law? No, he's not doing away with the law. When the penalty of death when the justice that is due for breaking the law is removed, then there is no condemnation and there is no violation. And that's what he's saying. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's no violation of the law anymore because Christ is the one who fulfilled it. Faith is credited as righteousness. There's no violation. There's no justice. There's grace. There's mercy. There's love. There's entering into the covenant community and inheriting all that Christ has. Now, verses 16 and 17, very, just very quickly there. This is really a summary of what he has already said. It's really just bringing it all together. For this reason, it is by faith that in order that... It, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only of those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He just called us the descendants of Abraham. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him who believed, in whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. He's elevating the greatness of God there at the end. The one who speaks creation into existence. The one who causes miracles to happen. as Perhaps speaking of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And you still have the miracle of Isaac. God can do all things. This is the God who has made these promises through Abraham. This is the God who has brought it all together with sending Christ into the world. That now the time has come that all the nations are going to be blessed. Everything that was foretold then, it's happening. It's right in the midst. And that's why, that's why the apostle is laboring these particular arguments. Not only is Abraham justified by faith, he was justified by faith while uncircumcised so that he would be the father of us all. So there is no more distinctions. There's no hierarchy of value here. You who were formerly alienated from the commonwealth of Israel have now been brought near. And you are now heirs and joint heirs with Christ. You are now considered the descendants of Abraham, according to what Paul says in Galatians 3. Dear friends, you are a covenant member. And you have not only received the blessing of justification, but you have received the promise of eternal life in the eternal state. That even the world would be yours. What a gracious God who would grant such things to sinners. Those who continually break his law and he says, all things are yours. And they're yours in him. The very thing to keep in mind is the emphasis that is here as well. I want you to think of this. Every time that you fall into this trap of, I must do, I must do, I must do, that God would be granting me his grace and his favor. I want you to remember this, that every time that you think you have to work for it, you're making faith void and the promise you're nullifying. Because the whole point is, he did it and he graciously gives it. And he graciously gives it through faith and faith alone. Nothing more. Christ has secured it all. Christ lived the perfect life. Actively fulfilled the law of God. Christ died the death as our substitute. Receiving the justice of God in our place and satisfying it. Christ is the one who has the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. That through his power and in his resurrection that he grants us the promise of eternal life and the resurrection also. That is what we believe. That's what we, we, we place our faith in. These are the truths that bring salvation. So if you are here and you have not called upon the Lord, these, these are the great realities and the great joys uh, that are in the gospel message of who Christ is and what he did. And he says to you, come. And I will give you rest. Believe upon the Lord and you will be justified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this portion of your word.
Well, Father, thank you for your many blessings that we are so undeserving of. Father, not one of us here can say that he worked for his salvation or she worked for her salvation. We all say we are sinners saved by grace. We all say that we needed your grace. We needed Christ. We thank you for his work and his, his death, his imputed righteousness. We, we thank you for everything. You are so gracious to us. We have such things to look forward to. And the things that we have to look forward to are by a pure act of your grace. Thank you so much. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all that you are and all that you continually do. Thank you for refreshing us and nourishing our souls with your word being applied to us by the Spirit of God. May our lives demonstrate our faithfulness, our commitment to you, our appreciation of all that you are. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen.